Good morning. April showers, that was a pretty fitting uh, melody for today, wasn't it? Welcome to the First Universalist Unitarian Church of Wassa. My name is Anna Gresh, and I'm a member of this congregation. I want to extend a very special welcome to everyone that's joining us here today, as well as online this morning. Since 1870, UU Wassa has served as a vital force for liberal religion in central Wisconsin. We are an intentionally free society that welcomes all people just as you are, regardless of your age, sexual orientation, ethnicity, or economic position. Wherever you are on life's journey, you are welcome here. Now, I know we have to social distance. We can't be shaking hands and hugging each other, but let's stand and at least wave to each other. Our friends are here. It's so good to see each other in church again. We are currently worshiping both in person and online, so be sure to subscribe to the church's newsletter, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram for updates, and with that, let's gather with our hearts and our minds for worship. Please join me in reciting the church's chalice lighting. You will find the words printed in the order of service. We light this chalice for the light of truth, the warmth of love, and the fire of commitment. We light the symbol of our faith as we gather together. And now let's stand for the first hymn, number 123, Spirit of Life.
Good morning, everyone. I'm Richard Olson, and I realized I forgot to include a Spanish version of this song. You probably remember some of those throughout last year. Um, it was just over a year ago in March that Anna and I were slated to do a service together, but it was canceled for obvious reasons. But we're back, and so are you, and welcome. It's great to be back here again after being in this sanctuary over 30 years. Um, I, I guess for the children's story, we're not having anybody come up front, uh, even adults. Or if any adults want to come up, please do so. Our story is, from, is an Aesop fable, and I don't know how many there are, but there's a lot of them. Two friends were walking down a path when suddenly they saw a bear coming toward them. A hungry bear, I might add. One of the men, without even thinking about his friend, decided to climb a tree and hide. The other friend, seeing that he had no chance alone with the bear, had no choice but to throw himself on the ground and pretend to be dead because he had heard that a bear will not touch a dead person. So there he was on the ground, trying not to move. He even held his breath so the bear couldn't see or hear him breathing. The bear came up to the body, sniffed around. He even sniffed his nose, ears, and heart, but the man didn't move. The bear, believing the man was dead, just walked away. When the bear was out of sight, the man in the tree climbed down. He went to his friend, who was now standing, and said, I saw that bear sniffing around you, and it looked like he said something when he put his mouth up to your ear. What did he say? Why, the friend replied, he told me to be careful about the company I keep and choose friends who choose not to abandon me in difficult times. So what is this story about? Well, it reminds us that sometimes we have no choice in doing what we want to do, but sometimes we do get that choice. We get to make those choices, especially when it comes to making friends. So if you want to have a good friend, you have to be a good friend. Let us now sing the children out. reading. In 1986, and marking its 25th anniversary, the annual General Assembly of the Universalist Unitarian Association of America was held in Rochester, New York. The Ware Lecture, which had been created before we even became an association, was given by Kurt Vonnegut, Jr. His words were later published in the UU World magazine. The title of Vonnegut's lecture was Love 
is too strong a word. Here are his comments relating to that title. The Christian preachers exhort their listeners to love one another and to love their neighbors and so on. Love is simply too strong a word to be much use in ordinary day-to-day -day relationships. Love is for Romeo and Julia. I'm to love my neighbor? How can I do that when I'm not even speaking to my wife and kids today? My wife said to me the other day after a knockdown, drag-out fight over interior decoration, I don't love you anymore. And I said to her, so what else is new? She really didn't love me then, which was perfectly normal, but she will love me some other time, I think, I hope. It's possible. If she had wanted to terminate the marriage to carry it past the point of no return, she would have had to say, I don't respect you anymore. That would be terminal. One of the many unnecessary American catastrophes going on right now, along with the religious revival and boiling water with plutonium, is all the people who are getting divorced because they don't love each other anymore. I'd like to think that Jesus in Aramaic would say, ye shall respect one another. That would be a sign to me that he really wanted to help us here on earth and not just in the afterlife. Of course, Vonnegut had no reason to believe that years later, this very organization that had invited him to give the Ware Lecture would launch a nationwide campaign dubbed Standing on the Side of Love. Our second reading comes from Love and Responsibility by Pope Jean Paul II. No one else can want for me. No one can substitute his act of will for mine. It does sometimes happen that someone very much wants me to want what he wants. This is the moment when the impassable frontier between him and me, which is drawn by free will, becomes most obvious. I may not want that which he wants me to want. And in this precisely, I am incommunicabilis. I am and I must be independent in my actions. All human relationships are posited on that fact. This ends the readings.
We called it social problems class, and being that it was at the end of the 60s, we never ran out of material. War, the draft, poverty, racism, riots, equal rights, and so on. It was a required class for all seniors at the high school I attended, a school that was attended by and staffed with only white people. On some Fridays, we watched a news film strip. Some of you remember those. The record would beep, and we would advance the film. On other Fridays, we had open discussions. Mrs. Nelson would ask for a volunteer to stand in front of the class and act as moderator. And Mr. Olson would always volunteer. You see, she called us by our last names, with a Mr. or Ms. in front of it. I can still hear her saying, Mr. Olson, we must let others have a chance. But Mrs. Nelson, I would say, nobody else wants to do it. It was a good fit for me. I was that geeky kid who had a keen interest in current affairs, and unlike most of my peers, I watched the Huntley Brinkley Report at 5.30 on NBC, which was the only channel we got for most of my life, my childhood. The Eau Claire area where I grew up was mostly white. Anyone of color stood out. But one set of my grandparents lived in Detroit, and we made a few trips to see them during the 60s and even into the 70s. The first time in 1961, I was in the fourth grade, so the whole concept of social problems was non-existent for me. Subsequent trips, however, introduced me to a city beset by racism, economic disparity, crime, and run-down neighborhoods. My grandmother grew up in Detroit, but not in poverty or high-crime run-down neighborhoods. As for the racism, may she rest in peace. But the 70s were a decade that really changed my life dramatically, my college days. Going from a graduating class of some 40 students, most of whom I'd started first grade with, to a university with some 9,000 students was a challenge for me. After a disastrous first year, I stopped out for a year to grow up. I went on to major in journalism and Spanish. Journalism offered me a well-rounded course of study, and Spanish opened up the world to me. In 1975, I took a Greyhound bus from Eau Claire to New York, then flew to Madrid, then took a bus to Valencia on the Mediterranean coast to stay with a family and earn some credits through the University of San Francisco. I had one small suitcase, no credit cards, and little cash. It was the most daring thing I'd ever chosen to do. I can still remember entering the Lincoln Tunnel and emerging into Manhattan and pulling into the seedy uh, Port Authority bus terminal. I can still hear myself, the green Wisconsinite, standing on the street asking people which bus goes to the airport. 
Judging by their faces and their lack of response, I think they knew I was from out of town. College may have opened the world to me, but I rarely opened a college textbook. I don't know about the rest of you, but I never met a college textbook I liked. Well, except for the ones in Spanish that offered useful activities, drills, grammar, and so on. So without the burden of reading textbooks, I found the time and freedom to read other materials. It was a time when there seemed to be an unofficial challenge to see who could read and discuss the most books written by Kurt Vonnegut, Jr. And there were a few. If I recall, I started with Breakfast of Champions, which was released in 1973. But I had some catching up to do, so I then read Slaughterhouse-Five and Cat's Cradle. Both had been published in the 60s. A couple of years later, I reread Breakfast of Champions as part of a paper I was writing comparing that work with one by Spanish writer Miguel de Unamuno titled Niebla, which is Spanish for mist. Since this was my first major paper in Spanish and since I was just experimenting with existentialism, I probably would be horrified to read that paper today. I was only an undergraduate student at the time, but I was smart enough to know not to hang on to any of those things. While both of those works by Vonnegut and Unamuno have multiple themes, I concentrated on the concept of free will. In both works, the author writes himself into the book, so creator and creation meet. After Vonnegut identifies himself as his creator, he sets his character, Kilgore Trout, free, much in the same way he says that Tolstoy set the serfs free and Jefferson set the slaves free. The author tells his creation, I'm going to set at liberty all the literary characters who have served me so loyally during my writing career. Trout wants Vonnegut to rewrite him, making him young again, but Vonnegut refuses. But after Vonnegut exits the story, his character is perplexed and isolated in what seems to be a strange environment in limbo, apparently condemned to survive on his own without his creator. Kilgore Trout shows up in other Vonnegut works until Vonnegut finally kills him off by having him drink Drano. That's so Vonnegut. That's so 70s. In the Unomuno story, the main character, Augusto, is distraught after a failed attempt at romance and is contemplating suicide. So Unomuno writes Augusto into the Spanish city of Salamanca, where Unomuno waits for him. He's not going to let him commit suicide. He then tells his creation that he does not exist, that he's only a fictional character and is destined to die at Unamuno's doing. Augusto begs Unamuno not to kill him off. Just as Vonnegut's Kilgore was confused, so is Unamuno's Augusto. 
At that time, I was very much taken by this idea of the relationship between the creator and the created and the concept of free will. Soon after, I read Pirandello's Six Characters in Search of an Author and was intrigued by the dynamics between authors and their characters and the theater of the absurd. So as I considered my so-called intellectual approach to all this, I would discover that the relationship between creators and created was nothing new. Those of us who are familiar with Hebrew scriptures will recall that both Abraham and Moses bargained with their alleged creator or representatives of said creator. All this about creators and creation makes me think of that causality dilemma of which comes first, the chicken or the egg. Which comes first, the created or the creator? Did the gods create the Greeks, or did the Greeks create their gods? The very concept of free will figures into both religion and philosophy, and beliefs in it range from no such thing to I am the the captain of my ship, the master of my fate. But those of us who tend toward that latter philosophy likely realize that both internal and external factors are at play. Sometimes we just don't have what the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy calls the freedom to do otherwise. And the concept of free will is moot. In 1884, the British were fighting the Russians in the Crimea. Apparently, due to some miscommunication and inept leadership, the cavalry of the Light Brigade was ordered into a battle that, had, that led to, to mass casualties. Later, Lord Alfred, Alfred Lord Tennyson wrote the poem, Charge of the Light Brigade. Tennyson captures the fated doom of those many men, men who recognized that they had surrendered their free will, men who, upon orders, did not have the freedom to do otherwise. Tennyson writes, Someone had blundered. Theirs not to make reply. Theirs not to reason why. Theirs but to do and die. Into the valley of death, rode the 600. Those soldiers who survived were honored for their bravery. The officers were not. But often we are free to do otherwise. When it is up to us, then it is our free will that drives us, and we are responsible for it. Exercises in free will are bouncing around us all the time in life, and they collide in that impassable frontier between you and me, him and her, us and them. These collisions vary in degrees, sometimes leading to only minor angst. Sometimes, though, they lead to anger, revenge, and even violence. But my response is driven by my own free will. I can choose to be respectful, show grace, and forgive. 
I can choose to be enraged, mean-spirited, and vengeful, or somewhere in between all those. I flinch when I hear people say, I'm sorry I made you feel that way, instead of saying, I'm sorry I did that. No, you need to take responsibility for your freely willed actions, and I'll take responsibility for my freely willed responses, and vice versa. The Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy identifies three common responses when these collisions of free will happen. Praise, blame, desert. Praise, blame, desert. I think praise is often hard to do when as such is the rarest. Blame is the most common and the easiest. Desert is the most difficult because our ego sometimes equates it with defeat. This recalls another trio of responses to clashes in free will. Fight, flee, or freeze. Freeze is what Unomuno and Vonnegut had their creations do. In the end, they gave them nothing to flee from, and they gave them nothing to fight for. And theirs was not to wonder why. At that same where lecture Anna mentioned before, Vonnegut speaks of those who are willing to give up their free will to, to wonder why when they submit to re- rigid religious tribalism. He says, quoting, I listened to the ethical pronouncements of the leaders of the so-called religious revival going on in this country and am able to distill only two firm commandments from them. The first commandment is stop thinking. The second commandment is obey. End quote. Oh, no. It continues, sorry. Only a person who has given up on the power of reason to improve life here on earth or a soldier in basic training could accept either commandment. Stop thinking and obey. Now that's the end of the quote. In Slaughterhouse-Five, Vonnegut's character, Billy Pilgrim, who is a soldier in World War II, finds comfort in not having to think, only obey. He is in a miserable situation, but it's not his free will that got him there. I suppose misery is less painful when we ourselves don't cause it, but we do. Of German ancestry, Vonnegut was born in Indianapolis in November of 1922. His parents were both native speakers of German, but World War II and its aftermath discouraged anything German. Vonnegut was raised in a liberal, free-thinking family. His great-grandfather founded the Freethinker Society of Indianapolis. Vonnegut would later refer to himself as a religious skeptic and a Christ-loving atheist. He would also become honorary president of the American Human, 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 Humanist Society. Sorry, 
During World War II, Vonnegut enlisted in the United States Army and was taken prisoner during the Battle of the Bulge. Some five months later, he found himself writing a letter to his parents from a Red Cross club at a POW repatriation camp in northern France. Dear people, he writes, I am told that you were probably never informed that I was anything other than missing in action. Chances are that you also failed to receive any of the letters I wrote from Germany. After telling his parents more details about his capture and subsequent mistreatment, he gets to the part about Dresden, where the prisoners were held in a building called Slaughterhouse Five. Following the fire bombing that destroyed the city and killed around 250,000 people, he and the other prisoners were forced to dispose of the corpses while survivors cursed them and threw stones at them. That experience led to one of his, most, his best known works, Slaughterhouse-Five. After the war and after several endeavors, Vonnegut landed a job in public relations for General Electric. He began submitting short stories to magazines. During a time when magazines were very popular and writers like F. Scott Fitzgerald, Faulkner, Hemingway, and Steinbeck were breaking into the literary world. There are many more details I could talk about Vonnegut and his life, but I want to just go back to some more of the comments he made at that General Assembly. Later on in this speech, he finally brings it around to more specific comments directed to the audience, you use. He said, but I didn't come all the way to Rochester to speak to a congregation of persons who, of such deep faith that they dare to be skeptical about widely accepted pronouncements of what life is all about. He adds, I will say that you, in terms of numbers, power, and influence, and your spiritual differences with the general population, are like the earliest Christians in the catacombs under imperial Rome. I hasten to add that your hardships are not the same, nor are you in any danger. Nobody in the power structure thinks children of the age of reason amount to a hill of beans. This is the extent of your discomfort. That sure beats being crucified upside down or being fled, fed to the, to the lions. He elaborates on his characterization of UUs as those early Christians who aspired to follow the teachings of a man called Jesus, a simple movement, the tired, the poor, women, children, the illiterate. You, he says, are like the early Christians in yearning for an era of peace and plenty and justice, which may never come. They thought Jesus would bring that about. You think human beings should be able to create such an era through their efforts. You are like them in that you live in a time when killing is a leading entertainment form. So now back to my own words. 
While we don't hide out in catacombs or have secret symbols to identify ourselves to each other, Vonnegut gives us something to think about. Are we more like those early believers who were reeling from a repressive Jewish temple system or Christian system? Are we more like those skeptics who dared to challenge commonly accepted pronouncements of what life is all about? Are we more like those early believers who believed in hope, humanity, harmony, justice, and the inherent worth of every person? I certainly hope so. I wonder if that early movement, one that led to many Christianities, was less like a church as we know it and more like scattered communities and societies. Of course, that indigenous movement would later be institutionalized, proscriptive, and convoluted. It would come under the control of powerful people and organizations and eventually become the big business it is today. A recent piece on National Public Radio and Ivos and Washington Post and The Week magazine reported that a number of, the number of people affiliated with religious organizations is declining in the United States. We'll see what happens to those mega churches in big cities and those legacy dominations that own massive properties that are generally not taxed. But it seems to me that more and more smaller churches are popping up in old movie theaters, strip malls, and former grocery stores. This could be a new trend, one of more independent churches, of more personal communities, breaking away from district organizations, breaking away from a national headquarters in, let's say, Boston, We like to call ourselves liberal-minded free thinkers, and our principles call upon us to use our free will to make others, to make ourselves and society better, or at least what we consider better. So how do we, how do we deal with those whose principles are different than ours? How do we respond to their efforts when they clash with ours, whether their efforts are driven by their free will or the institutions that influence them. Do we praise ourselves? Yes, sometimes maybe too much. Do we blame others? Yes, sometimes too much. Do we desert? Sometimes, and sometimes we must. Fight, flee, freeze, it's your choice. It may be safer, safer and easier to stop thinking and obey. But ours is not to do and die. Ours is to do and live. The mission and ministry of UUWASA is made possible by the generous support of its friends and neighbors and members. Rather than pass a plate at this time, 
We've placed an offering basket in the back of the sanctuary for you to drop a gift in. You can also stop by our website, uuwasa.org, to make a one-time or a recurring gift with your credit or debit card. Thank you for your support. Now the closing hymn, number six, Just As Long As I Have Breath. Please remain standing for the closing words. These are the words of St. Francis of Assisi. Where hate rules, let us bring love. Where sorrow, joy. Let us strive more to confront others, to comfort others, than to be comforted. To understand others, than to be understood. To love others more than to be loved. For it is in giving that we receive and in pardoning that we are pardoned. When I asked Ray to play a waltz for the postlude, he started playing on the beautiful Danube by Johannes Strauss II. When I called him over to my computer to hear a waltz I had in mind, I said, do you know this one? He said, do I know this one? It was my mother's favorite song. The waltz you are about to hear was not composed by Strauss, as many believe, but instead by Mexican composer Juventino Rosas. So, unless you want to dance with someone in your immediate family, or you want to dance by yourself, we ask that you remain seated. Enjoy, and may the force be with you. Carolyn and Orv. <laughs> <laughs> 